0: Intergalactic Space exploration being a field of great opportunity places a heavy emphasis on the many different applications of STEM within it. This means that the study of space is infinitely diverse and an amalgamation of all kinds of other disciplines. Today we have Dr. Tess Caswell joining us as an incredible example of what STEM can do. Welcome, Tess, and thanks for hopping on today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've pursued so many aspects of, of STEM throughout your career, from doing mechanical engineering to geological science, environmental and planetary sciences. How does the variety of your education help your career?
1: Oh, man. Well, I think the biggest thing is that it has opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of disciplines across science technology, engineering math they speak slightly different languages but fundamentally the core concepts are the same in a lot of different disciplines. Um, so it's helped me kind of see the common threads that run across disciplines and that is what has enabled me to integrate across those disciplines in my current role.
0: So what are some of those threads that you find
1: across different disciplines of STEM? Uh, well one of the big ones is just you know physics or physics. Um, and so whether you're an engineer or you're a geologist, you, you still have to abide by the same fundamental laws of the universe. And, you know, engineers may say the primary stress goes in one direction and geologists say it goes in the other, but in the end, stress is stress. And so, um, being able to see where those things come together is, uh, where you find those bridges between the disciplines.
0: So where did your interest in STEM come from? You have a very diverse background in STEM. So how did you know that you wanted to go in that direction?
1: I have been a nerd since I was 10 years old. Uh, And it really, it was initially ignited by this picture that my fifth grade teacher put up in our classroom that I think it was like 10 feet long and 10 feet tall of a space shuttle orbiting the earth. And that just really captured my imagination and set me on a course to want to be involved in some way with human exploration of space. Um, and from there, it's been kind of following opportunities and just seeing where they go.
0: So how has your career progressed from one science to another? And how did it ultimately lead you to where you are today?
1: Well, I started out pursuing engineering predominantly because when i was a kid i met the third person to walk on the moon p conrad who was the commander of apollo 12 and he told me that if i wanted to be an astronaut i should be an engineer and so i very studiously followed that i studied mechanical engineering in my undergrad uh, with an aerospace emphasis because i knew i wanted to work in aerospace eventually And then I did internships as an undergrad, which led me to my first job out of college, which was as a flight controller for the International Space Station Program. While working in mission control, I kind of saw the science that was going on on board the ISS. I had kind of a passive role in facilitating it and providing resources to various payloads. And I got interested in sort of the science of spaceflight and what exploring space is teaching us about the universe. So that's when I decided to go back to school and study a science, um, in which case I chose planetary geology. So I went to Brown University and I studied uh, planetary geology for a Ph.D. for five years, ultimately realized that my favorite thing to do is operate spacecraft. So I looked for a job that combined those two things. And now I help plan spacewalks. And hopefully, we'll be planning spacewalks on the moon in the not-too-distant future.
0: That's so cool. Um, so you've had a bunch of really incredible experiences through your work, and one of which that really caught my eye was your experience flying in zero gravity. So could you talk a little bit about that experience, and what was it like to you, for you?
1: Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> That's about the best word you could use to describe it. I think it was awesome, and it was fun. Um, obviously, we were doing it um, in order to learn things and to conduct an experiment. But along the way, I think we learned a lot more about the process of engineering than we learned about the actual thing we were studying. Um, so I guess I should back up a step. I was part of a, st- a team of students who were participating in NASA's reduced gravity education flight program. So we proposed an experiment that we wanted to fly on board the aircraft. Um, we were accepted, we had several months to put it together, and then we flew down to Texas, and we flew aboard the aircraft um, notionally to run our experiment while floating in zero gravity. Um, but what we basically ended up doing is having our experiment be a total failure. So we floated around a lot, and we had a good time. Uh, we did some science, but when we got back down on the ground, we had no useful data from our experiment. So what we really learned is that sometimes, no matter how much you plan, You uh, have to go back to the drawing board once you finish your adventure.
0: That's really interesting. What was that experiment like that you were working on?
1: So the two reduced gravity missions that I participated in as a student were focused on studying attitude determination and control systems for spacecraft. So essentially the things that um, determine which direction a satellite is pointing and then Keep it in that position or move it to where you want it to be for whatever its mission is. Um, So, we had a small satellite prototype that we released in the zero gravity environment of the aircraft, and we were measuring how accurate it was at pointing at its target and then how well, how stable it was in holding that position. Um, The first time we were using a magnetic system to orient the spacecraft and We didn't do enough analysis, and we were concerned that the magnetic field that we were generating was going to be harmful to the aircraft itself. So we enclosed our entire experiment in a steel box, essentially. But that meant that we couldn't see it at all during the course of the flights, which is why we had no idea until we got back on the ground that it wasn't working whatsoever.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. So that's like the second time we flew, we actually we proposed the experiments over again, we redesigned the way that we were executing the experiments, we improved the design of our satellite itself, and the second time we flew, we got a lot more data and were a lot more successful in our flight, partially because we failed the first time around. So that must have been a huge
0: learning ex- experience for you and your team. How did you guys move forward after facing a
1: difficult challenge? Well... Obviously, initially you experience some level of disappointment, right? <laughs> we we very eagerly all crowded around the computer to watch the video of our first run, and ended up seeing absolutely nothing. So you go through that period of mourning for your experiment. Um, but after that, it's kind of a matter of applying the engineering process to it. You know, sitting down and saying, okay, what happened? Why do we think it happened? What can we do to improve the experiment to keep that from happening the next time around? And that's how we were able to come up with the design that we proposed for our second round of flights a a year later.
0: That's really interesting. So kind of on a separate note, back in 2016, you were a flight engineer on the crew of the 11th Hera mission at NASA JSC. So let's talk a little bit about that. You basically got to live the life of an astronaut for a month without the actual going to space part. So what were some of the biggest hurdles that you faced on that
1: mission? Oh man, it was quite the adventure. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I lived in the Hera habitat at JSC for a month with three other people who I had only known for about two months before that, and who I only met in person two weeks before we went in. So I would say going into it, I was initially quite worried just about how we would get along. Um especially because I was the only woman on the mission, so the other three crew members were all guys, and I was a little worried that I was going to feel isolated because of that. Fortunately, it turned out that we got along really well, and that was never an issue whatsoever on the entire mission. Um, What actually ended up being probably the most challenging um, was just the interpersonal side of it, which maybe isn't that surprising when you're cooped up in a small space with three other people for a month. Um, many of us now probably know what that's like. And uh, I, I learned a lot about how I respond to sort of the, the minutiae of little stressors that build up over time when you're in a confined space with three other people um, and how I respond to those and what some of the good strategies are for overcoming them to keep little things from becoming big things.
0: That's really interesting. What was the purpose of the Hera Habitat?
1: Well, there was the simulated purpose, and then there was the actual purpose through NASA. So the simulated mission was to go to an asteroid called Geographos to fly down to its surface and to collect geologic samples to return to Earth for analysis. So this is what we were simulating doing while we were inside of the habitat. The actual purpose that all of the NASA investigators were interested in was actually studying how my crewmates and I responded to the isolation and stress of a month inside of the habitat so there were about 20 different investigators who were doing various psychological and medical studies on us while we were inside the habitat
0: interesting that must have been quite the experience
1: (laughs) it was we were real lab
0: rats wow (laughs) so um what stuck with you about the Hera mission
1: until today well, I think one of the biggest things was just learning about how important it is to communicate with people that you're in either a stressful or an isolated environment with, you know, um, especially in today's world where we're all spending most of our time at home. If you're at home with your family, you've probably figured out that if someone is doing something that annoys you and you never say anything about it, it just gets more and more annoying over time, right? So, um, Learning to communicate with people was probably one of the biggest skills that grew and um, that I exercised while inside of the habitat.
0: Kind of along those lines, do you have any tips to somebody who wants to work on their communication?
1: (laughs) I think the, the first thing is to just not be afraid to communicate on things. Some of the stuff that I was afraid of going into the Hera mission with three guys was just, you know, like, girl stuff (laughs) and at some level you just had to be willing to be like well we are in a confined environment and they're gonna have to deal with the fact that things happen and you know maybe i'll be more emotional or whatever you know Um, and so just not not being afraid to discuss difficult topics with people because it's gonna affect the team one way or the other and it's it's easier to overcome the challenge if you're able to talk about it I don't know if that made sense. It was kind of rambling, but... No, that
0: was perfect. That (laughs) made a lot of sense. That was really cool. So (laughs) have you always been inclined to go on the path of STEM? Uh, Did you ever have any second guesses about your ambitions?
1: You know, for the most part, I have been pretty consistent in my interest in STEM, um, especially if you give it the broader STEM uh, classification. You know, having switched from engineering to geology, I've kind of bounced around a little bit within STEM, but I've always been excited by sort of the more mechanical, physical aspects of the world that we live in. That's really quite cool. I will say as a uh, little kid, I wanted to be a firefighter. And there was a brief period of time where I thought about being a professional musician. And uh, my parents very gently uh, advised me that maybe I would more enjoy being an engineer and should stick with that.
0: Kind of on a separate note, I don't, I don't know if this would actually go in the podcast, but in my elementary school and stuff like that, we uh, emphasize a lot about STEAM, where arts Mm -hmm. is really emphasized in there. So that just made me think of that. So that's really cool.
1: (laughs) And really, you know, I don't think that it was anything against music as a field that my parents cautioned me against changing my mind. It was more that like. I was probably doing it because my best friend wanted to be a musician, not because I was actually good at music, you know. <laughs> they were kind of keeping me on track to follow my skills more than anything else.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you face any challenges getting into engineering or planetary sciences as a woman? You know,
1: I didn't really. And I think that my per- my experience in that regard was a little bit unique um, I don't know if it was just the my mentality going into it, or the way my parents raised it, or raised me, or what. But I just I don't necessarily pay attention to those sorts of factors. I just do what I need to do. It's kind of my mentality when approaching challenges: is I know what I want to do, I know the steps that I need to accomplish in order to get there, and I just do them, and I don't really worry as much about external factors. Um, And maybe there were things happening that I didn't realize. Maybe I was oblivious, but I just never really perceived that my gender really held me back in any way. Um, that being said, I, I know people in the sciences who have experienced problems, um, especially some of my friends in graduate school who, you know, had a strained relationship with their advisors over relate, you know, gender related issues. So, um, It is out there. I just personally didn't ever really experience it.
0: So you've been super involved with bringing girls into STEM. And could you summarize some key points on how the world as a whole can achieve that, especially at a high school level?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, What I've seen for the most part is just encouraging young women to follow their interests if they do lie in something more technical, you know, Making those opportunities available to girls and, and not even implicitly biasing girls toward um, things outside of science, technology, engineering, and math. Because um, I think I've, it's just something that people don't even realize that they're doing sometimes, and they and they encourage boys to go into more hands-on science, engineering, you know, like tool-oriented trades when they would necessarily encourage a girl to go do the same thing. And there's no real reason for it. It's just kind of habit. So all that is to say in a kind of rambling way that I think just encouraging young women to enter these fields and supporting them when they do so goes a long way towards building their confidence when they do reach that point in a STEM field where maybe they're having issues because they're the only girl in a class of 30 men or something like that. You know, when they've been told all along that there's no reason why they shouldn't be there. Then they don't doubt themselves when they get into those challenging scenarios. So,
0: how can a high school female that's really interested in STEM uh, foster that interest and develop it?
1: I think look for the opportunities that are available to her. Uh, you know, that was one thing that I always did is just I know what I'm interested in. So, what things can I do to spend more time engaging in, in that interest um, and and just just going for it, really.
0: Awesome. What were you like in high school? Did your personality or your interests in things play a big role in the progression of your career?
1: I think so. Um, I think that in high school I was probably a super nerd. I don't, I was definitely not popular <laughs> and not in a bad way, but in just like a I, was a, I was a nerd. I liked to spend my time reading books about space flight. I always did my homework. I never went to parties. Um, but you know, and I didn't even realize that that was not cool in any way. It never even occurred to me that I would even want to be spending my weekends partying. I just was more interested in hanging out with my friends and getting my homework done on time. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. I don't know. That was kind of rambling, so maybe isn't a great uh, answer for your podcast, but in general, in high school, I was a nerd and I spent a lot of time studying and reading and doing sports and just kind of being oblivious to pretty much anything except for my goals of going to college to study engineering and someday hopefully being an astronaut.
0: I think that's really cool. You know, maybe that was for the better that you were able to really focus your motivation on the future.
1: And I think a lot of that comes down to having had that conversation with Pete Conrad when I was a kid. You know, he said, if you want to be an astronaut, go to a military academy and become an engineer. And so... Right then, at age 10, I decided I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, and I was going to study aerospace engineering because I wanted to be an astronaut, and those were the steps that I was told I needed to take in order to get there. Wow. It didn't quite, you know, all go to that plan when it came down to real life, but um, that was what set me on that path, and I just followed it kind of relentlessly.
0: Wow. That's very inspiring to hear. So in general, what's something that you're looking forward to in the realm of space exploration?
1: I am looking forward to boots on the moon in the next decade. I really hope that we are able to follow through on this goal of putting humans on another planetary body, hopefully in 2024, which is the current administration's goal. But we'll see what happens um, because it it is the perfect combination of the two things that I've studied, right? It's human space exploration operations and it's scientific exploration um, in a geologic context. So it's the two things I'm really interested in and they're hopefully coming together in the near future.
0: So, um, An interesting question here. So how do you feel about riding a commercial spacecraft to the moon when you're a future NASA astronaut?
1: (laughs) Well, I hope I'm a future NASA astronaut. We'll see what happens. Um, But even for future NASA astronauts who might be my friends instead of my coworkers directly, um, I think it's awesome that commercial entities are now providing access to space. Um, Prior to my current job, which is working at Johnson Space Center, I worked for the private company Blue Origin and I was part of their human spaceflight operations team. And I saw kind of the leaps and bounds that commercial space is able to take in advancing the state of the art in human spaceflight. And I think it's a good thing to be injecting that innovation into the aerospace industry. And I think that partnering with an agency like NASA helps temper it by bringing the lifetimes of experience and safety culture of a very large, and well-founded organization to bear in a context where people are throwing out a lot of new ideas and helping to really advance the state of the art.
0: Yeah, truly. Um, so if you did get the chance to go to space on a mission, I'm assuming you would do it, right? Oh, 100%. Wow. What's the thing you find most intriguing about participating in a spacebound mission?
1: That is an excellent question. I personally am a very experiential person. I like to experience new things and explore new concepts and ideas. And I am intrigued by the idea of pushing the envelope of the human experience and improving the state of our knowledge about ourselves and our planet and the fundamental theories of the universe, right? Like thermodynamics and material science and fluid mechanics, all these things that are different in space. We study them in space that betters how we understand things on earth. So um, overall, I would guess that that that's kind of summed up in the experience of exploration.
0: Could you talk a little bit about how you've changed as a person since entering
1: this industry? Yeah, this is an interesting question because uh, it's hard to say how much I personally have changed. I think what's changed is that I have gained an appreciation for the complexities of human spaceflight, that I no longer view it as simply a rah rah, let's go kind of endeavor, but as a combination of that, that desire to go and explore and the need to be methodical and, and careful about how you do it so that you keep people safe.
0: Are there any experiences that you've had that really fortified that idea
1: in you? Yeah, I would say that coming back to the aerospace industry after working on my PhD allowed me to sort of reset my perspective and to come in at it with fresh eyes. And when I came back and I went to work at a private company like Blue Origin, I saw the aerospace industry from a a new perspective, as well as coming in on it with new knowledge. So those two factors together helped build context for the way that I view human space exploration and really shaped the way that I see it now. So STEM is a field that's
0: obviously absolutely everywhere. So how do you think STEM appears in your life outside of just work?
1: Oh, STEM is, as you said, STEM is everywhere. I've already alluded to sort of like the fundamental underlying concepts of the universe, right? Thermodynamics, fluid mechanics, uh, material science, stress and strain. All of these are things that are going on in the background of our everyday lives. And so to uh, have learned about them in school gives you that appreciation. But uh, it's, it's just you just know that it's always there, um, which maybe betrays how much of a nerd I am that I think about those sorts of things.
0: That's a great perspective to have on life, just seeing, yeah, just thinking about everything that's happening um, as life just goes on. I think that's really cool.
1: My uh, my advisor in graduate school would sort of go, he would wax poetic about thermodynamics and how it was all around us and how thermodynamic processes were occurring in the, in the trees outside of the window that we were looking at as we spoke. <laughs> and that sort of perspective just kind of stuck with me.
0: Yeah, I'm in my first physics class in high school right now, and that's oh, yeah. that definitely mirrors my physics teacher. She's always talking about just the continuity of physics and just how it's everywhere, and it definitely draws me to physics a
1: lot more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gives some real-world applications.
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's, it's It really brings um, the impact of any field to a whole different level when you put the whole application of it together. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you start to understand why it's important, not just in the books.
0: Yep, definitely. On your blog, Final Frontier Science, you mentioned how intertwined the disciplines of science and engineering are. Mm-hmm. How do you use your experience with both to complement
1: each other? That comes back to the, the sort of shared language between science and engineering, really the only big difference between engineering and geology was that on in the earth things are always smashing together right like mountains and plates and so and geologists like to think of stress as being compression and primary compression and and engineers are usually thinking about things being in tension so they kind of define their axes differently but otherwise the language is entirely the same in terms of stress and strain and strain rates and things like that. So I was surprised to learn how much they really have in common more than anything else.
0: Yeah. And in that experience, um, are there any specific lenses or perspectives that you've uh, been able to use or implement?
1: Um, I did have a kind of a funny conversation with one of my professors early on in the geology department where I was talking to her about the names of rocks. And if you've ever like just gone on the black hole of Wikipedia and looked at the names of rocks, you will find that they don't necessarily make any kind of sense because people will have named rocks about like where they were when they found the rock for the first time. And so I was complaining to this professor. I was like, oh, in engineering, you know, engineers are so cut and dry. They're so boring that everything is like, named very meticulously after some sort of boring principle and rocks have all these weird names. And she looked at me and she just goes, well, it's just a different language. And that really stuck with me because in a lot of fields, it's just a matter of learning the different language for the same things in order to get comfortable and to become part of that field. Although I still think that it's ridiculous how rocks have totally random and crazy names.
0: Yeah, I'm not really aware with many rock names, are there? Do you have any examples?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, like um, the mantle is composed primarily of a rock called olivine, or I should say a mineral called olivine. It's part of a rock called peridotite. Uh-huh. Um, so you have to remember minerals versus rocks, which is another layer of complexity. Although there's a, a great analogy that that same professor had for that that difference as well lizardite is one of my favorite rock names wow that's um, really something <laughs> nice is a great rock to use for puns <laughs> or schist is another good one yeah there's just like a, they seem totally random and weird yeah that's really quite cool <laughs> but
0: this is a really interesting conversation and i am thrilled to be hearing all these cool perspectives on all kinds of aspects of STEM, uh, little uh, intersections of geology in there, space exploration. I thought that was super cool. We seem to be at, uh, nearing the end of our time. So I have one more question to ask you. If you could sum up your entire life thus far
1: into a single slogan, what would it be? You know, I don't know that there's one single slogan that I I have for the way that I approach things, except maybe keep moving forward. I have, my, my philosophy is to kind of continue looking for opportunities to learn and grow and to avoid stagnating. And I feel like you should always be sticking your neck out a little bit to learn something new or do something new that expands your horizons. That is
0: such an inspiring bit of advice. Well, that wraps up today's episode of Intergalactic. I want to thank Tess for joining us today and giving us some fantastic insight on space as a whole. Uh, Would you like to add anything, Tess?
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. And I'm really thrilled at your goals with this podcast and sort of showcasing the variety of experiences that people have in STEM. Insert cool music.
0: You've been listening to the Intergalactic Podcast. Production support by Eileen Owens, editing by Daniel Gillies, music is problem thing by Dave Kiefer. And this is your host, Aditi Srivastava. Please tune in for our next episode, where I'll be exploring more of space, tech, and beyond.